This is The Rock Show with Andy Fox. It was in May 2002 that GTFM began as the very first community radio station in Wales and one of the first in the UK. I joined in 2003 having been in radio during the 80s and the 90s presenting the album chart show and now the rock show which of course is broadcast to seven other networks. So to continue our celebrations tonight I'm going to present to you some of my favourite interviews that I've done over the years. We have the likes of Ozzy, Don Airy, Richie Blackmore, Ian Gillen, Bruce Dickinson, Bernie Marsden, Rick Parfit and the one and only Philip Lynott.
starting with the one and only Ozzy Osbourne. Now, people often ask me who was one of the best interviewee. And I've always answered that one of them was undoubtedly Ozzy Osbourne. He came into the studio to talk about the album Bark at the Moon in 1983. Sharon actually was with him, although nobody knew she was at the time. She wasn't famous or anything. Uh, he was very open, honest, candid, and very, very funny. So in our clip tonight, he talks about Bark at the Moon, Bats, and British music. I mean, the album cover is sort of in keeping with previous... Ozzy Osbourne epics. Well, uh, when I come up with a title, Sharon said, what are you, you going to call the album? I said, how about Bark at the Moon? And she says, oh, that's a good title. I said, what, what can I do? I mean, I can't go in there with like a like a little Yorkshire terrier with his leg cut off. <laughs> <laughs> so she said, well, why don't you go in as a werewolf? And I said, well, it'll look stupid if I go to a joke shop and get like a map. <laughs> I'll go the whole hog. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I've got, I know a friend in America who knows his agency that knows makeup people. And this guy, Greg Cannon, came over and he was just amazing. It took five and a half hours to do it. I mean, every one of those hairs on my body was stuck on individually. And it was amazing t transformation. I mean, when I took it off, my wife fainted when she saw the real me again. She preferred it with the makeup on. <laughs> but um, it was a lot of fun. It was a new experience. And we did the video with Mike Mansfield with it. And it, it came out great. I mean, the video is fabulous. Those pictures in Kerrang are absolutely amazing, mm. I must say. It cost a lot of money, though. 50,000 quid, yeah. Yeah. But it's it's like you speculate to accumulate. It's like the, the people never forget that, you know. Sort of right. Like, I mean, if you saw that in a record shop, you'd go, what the hell is this all about, you know? Exactly. It's like going back to actually how they did it, I mean, your face is... Although it's you can what see they it's do, you. They, they sort of put this bald cap on your head yeah. and put this, like, polystyrene extensions on your face and your nose. It's like it sticks over your nose and your cheeks are put on What about your, your teeth? And they, they, they take... Um, Cast of your teeth, and then you they make the fang like false teeth. You know, you stick them over the top of your real teeth. Because okay. you know, I mean, you, you, particularly the face and the hands were. I came down at Shepherd and Studio. I was up there for five and a half hours, and I came down. I came down this long, long black corridor, dark corridor, and there was this kid with his mother. And this kid, I thought he was going to have a heart attack when he seen me walk out this dark corridor. <coughs> he was screaming the place. I said, "It's all right, it's me." <laughs> Amazing. Back to the the thing we were talking about publicity. I mean, everybody which really annoys me sometimes but everybody sort of speaks of it oh Ozzy Osbourne he's that guy with the ridiculous affair of the, the bat I mean what <laughs> do you, um, you, you wouldn't believe I'm I mean, sorry if anybody said to, to me one day how did you write that song Ozzy I mean no one ever says it to me now it's like hi Ozzy how about have you, have you had any bats these days and, yeah, yeah. and any doves heads and whatever I mean I honestly think I lie in my house with a big pot full of bats eating them all day long <laughs> you know? I mean it's just I'm so sick and tired I'm of I'm sorry talking. that I have to ask you. No, it's just, you know, about the nine millionth this week thing. No, but it's, it's just one of those things that happened. It was an accident where somebody threw a live bat on the stage, and I thought it was one of those joke things, and I bit into it. It was real, and then I had to go for a precaution to go and get some rabies vaccine, just in case I might, I might have just swallowed a bit of the juice. I see. But what fun, I tell you, when I had them shots, it really knocked me about something terrible. Right, mm. And another thing that you're, you're well quoted on is your opinion of British music these days. It's 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 it's, it's so changing all the time. You can't have time to get into it. I mean, I, I don't, I don't sort of. I mean, it's probably given my age away here, but I can't really see the message behind. I can't really see what they're trying to do. You know, I can't mm. understand it at all. And Which is, away. it's just like America. We just did a a, a thing called the US Festival in California. And three days had like this futuristic, it's futuristic, heavy. Um, punk and then country and western and out of all the four gigs the heavy day outsold everything 
Mm. I mean, and yet, yet still, they, just, they still don't recognise it. Yeah, like, now crazy. they're waking up to the fact of it, you know. Out there. In America? Yeah. yeah. It's sort of like, um, I mean, every every time you do an open festival anyway, you never see a big festival of punk music, because that many people turn up, you know. Right. I mean, if you're going to put a big festival, you want to have as many people there as you can to make it more of an event, and if you, every time they put a, a sort of heavy rock sh thing, like Donington, like, like, like where Sabbath played as well, what was that called? Then? Reading. Reading. Mm. They always turn out in mass, you know, because that's the hardcore fans, and they're not, they're not people that, are, like, one week they got one eyebrow shaved, and then the next week they got the other row, and one leg tied behind the neck and all this. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's, I mean, it's, it's like, I often think, what do these people think when they think, oh, I know, I know I've got to be the sensation next week, I'll cut my head off and walk around with it on my arm, you know? <laughs> It's just, I mean, it's as if they don't think of the music till the, the last thing. You know? Whereas, the, I, I saw the thing in Kerrang where you said that you thought about that Superman record. Oh, man, that thing, I, I think mean, that's the worst I thing. I nearly got my so. shotgun and blew the television through the wall. I, <laughs> I, I just looked at it and I thought, you know, I look at it and I think, why do I sit down trying to write something with a message, with a bit of a melody, when there's a guy now, pick your nose and scratch <laughs> your ass, you know. You know, it's, I mean, there's a he's on the television to the masses, you know. Brilliant, yeah. I mean, what is it all about? You know, are people turning to vegetables or something? Right. It, it's it's so surprising because the number of people I talk to, you know, who are into heavy music, have exactly the same opinion. Yeah? I mean, you don't people th people at one time you think, oh, you get a guitar, turn the amplifier up as loud as possible, make as much row as you can, and um, and that's it. But there's a lot of thought and a lot of time that goes into these songs. It's not as if we just go into a show and ah, we'll do it, knock it out in five minutes. We spend a lot of money and a lot of time making these records, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I wish you every success we've got to them. Yeah, thank think. you very much. One and only Ozzy Osbourne there, of course, talking about the album Bark of the Moon, Bats and his uh, take on British music, which was brilliant. Now, the person responsible for writing the intro of that particular song, Mr Crowley, 
and has also played with virtually everyone in rock circles is the one and only Don Airy, of course. And he, he played with Ozzy in Black Sabbath and other people in Black Sabbath. He played in White Snake, Judas Priest, Rainbow, Deep Purple, and he's, of course, currently in Deep Purple, but joined Ozzy Osbourne in 1981 to play on the Diary of the Madman tour from 1981 to 1982. And uh, this is his story about that particular time. I mean, it must have been mad working with Ozzy. I mean, just touring with him must have been mad. Well, it's not what you'd think of, think of as like. It was the tightest road operation I'd ever known about. Really? Um, yeah, there was no drinks backstage, there was no hanging about, there were no hangers-on, there were no mad parties. You know, when I was young, Sharon said to me, you'll you'll find uh, life as a monk a lot more interesting than this trip. Blimey. And that's what it was like, yeah. It was very kind of pure existence, really. Because Sharon was on the road or because Ozzy wanted it? Aren't that's how they run it. Right, yeah, right. Um, it was the only way you could run it when you're doing five, six gigs a week, travelling 3,000 miles a mm. week. Now, you've got this, this funny story about, um, was it pizzas? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, when we had Vandenberg were supporting us on one leg of the tour, and uh, Ozzy and I used to have this tradition. We custard pie the support band on the last night. They were with us. Right. And it was always arranged like a military operation. We'd suss out where they moved during the set and how we'd get them you see <laughs> so uh, with Vandenberg it was we timed it where they before they went on for their encore the drummer bring them back on with a drum roll we thought right we'll do the drummer then and then get the lads as they run on yeah. uh, which is what we did and it worked and so they went on to do the last number covered in custard <laughs> and they you know singing with all this stuff dripping off them it was uh, it was probably our greatest moment in the custard pie <laughs> career but they got their own back by uh, whilst we were on buying a load of tin foil covering themselves in tin foil and when we're doing iron man they came on <laughs> as the iron men and they carried ozzy off shoulder high you know they put and they marched off with him Brilliant. and um of course ozzy had the radio mic and they took him out the building and down the street <laughs> And we just kept playing Iron Man. And he was still singing. Well, he stopped singing. Oh, I'm going down the street now. Oh, we're entering the pizza parlour. And we heard him, yeah, I want, uh, you know, hold the pepperoni. And we just kept, and this commentary going on, we just kept playing Iron Man. And then Ozzy marched back into the building with the pizzas uh, borne aloft by Vandenberg. And the crowd went mad. Yeah. Brilliant. Where, where was this? Uh, well, a bootleg of <laughs> somewhere in New York State. I mean, it was Amazing. too funny for words. We could, it, the number then came to a halt on the show. Yeah, and that was the end of things.
Rainbow, and of course, before that, Deep Purple was the one and only legendary guitarist Richie Blackmore, not known for his uh, fondness of talking to the media. But I did manage to chat to him in the late 90s about his Renaissance project, Blackmore's Night, and his altercations with the press. I'm English, so I know all about the cynicism. Let's knock everybody. And, um, but uh, you have to follow your heart. And with Renaissance music, uh, I've been playing this music for like probably 30 years and listening to it very intently. It's very passionate, majestic music. And it's just like rock and roll in a way. But there again, if there were people that didn't like it, they're the type of people that don't like anything I do anyway. If I was with Rainbow, they don't like it because we don't have Ronnie Dio. Ronnie Dio's in bad. It's not the same as it used to be. He should have Gillan and he should be in purple. If I was in purple again, ah, oh, now you should get Ronnie Dio. And it goes on ad nauseum. You know? So I take that with a pinch of salt. And, and it, like I was saying last night in another interview, you have to believe yourself. Because if you listen to every person backstage or at the stage door, you'll have three fans and they'll all say opposite things. You know, oh, it was great tonight, carry on the best. And someone else will say, why don't you reform Rainbow? And then the other person was, well, you should be back in Deep Purple. And it's like, it could drive you crazy from that point. I've lived in America for 18 years. The the, um, the Americans are dead, are petrified of the British press. I find the British press very funny. I do, because they just destroy everybody. And it's, it's all great fun until you suddenly see your name on there and you go, oh, no. And then you read the review, and sure enough, they've they'll carve you up. You know. yeah. Who the hell is Richie Mackin think he is? He's wearing tights. You know, Christ's sake. You know. yeah. Why doesn't he just go down the bar and get drunk? Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, I'll get drunk and wear tights. <laughs> um, we, we, but there is that cynicism that if you talk to the press, you actually talk to them and, and go down the bar and have the pint with them, they're, they're okay. Yeah. But if you don't talk to them, they get nasty. We've always been a bit concerned of the way you've been... You know, portrayed well, I think everybody's. I think everybody's concerned about it. Um, actually, more so than me. Um, but a lot of it has to do with you know when you've got to hear two sides of a story. And I'm not a particularly verbose person that wants to talk about my side of the story. I've always been the type of person to say, if you, you know, I'm not going to explain myself if you don't like it too bad. Of course, the enemy jumps in on that and says. I'll tell you how bad he is. He's a rotten person. But if you're not there to defend it and say, well, I disagree, it goes their way. And I kind of like, I do like the nasty, 
image in a way. I do. I dwell on it. I, I, like, I don't want to be Mr. Nice Guy. And if it pisses off the press, that's good for me. famously uh, well-known for falling out with his former singer in Deep Purple, Ian Gillen. But they were, of course, part of a very successful uh, Deep Purple, and Ian Gillen, of course, still is. But not a not-so-successful time fronting the band Black Sabbath for the Born Again album in the 80s. And uh, this is probably one of the funniest bits. And um, I haven't cut this back too much because uh, I want you to hear the whole lot. So here, Ian Gillan reminisces about the time when he joined Black Sabbath. Tony Iommi said you never actually ever agreed to join the band. It was just the fact you were talking in the pub and yeah. said, let's do it. Well, something like that. We He said, do you fancy a beer, a drink, beer, scotch, whatever it was. So were you, weren't you living close by at that time? No, not really. Oh, I thought you were. They were living in Birmingham and I was living in um, Reading. Near, near Reading. Near Reading, So he phoned me up and he said, fancy a pint? I went, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> he said, let's meet in Oxford. <laughs> so I met in Oxford and Geezer was there as well. I thought they were up to something, but I didn't really put two and two together. Um because I'd had an almighty pile up in my car on the way there and the, the back of the car was totally smashed in and uh, so I uh, we I parked it outside and there it was for a few days left it there went inside and had a drink and uh, so we went in and had something to eat at lunchtime one o'clock-ish and uh, I can't remember much after that it was about <laughs> all I remember is at seven o'clock I was under the table um, with Geezer writing a song <laughs> and the management asked us to leave because they were laying the tables for the evening session the restaurant was on and uh, so I got a cab home and uh, uh, I got a phone call from my manager the next day saying you know Ian I think you should phone me when you're going to make career decisions like this and I said what are you talking about he said well apparently yesterday you joined Black Sabbath <laughs> I said yeah but just for a year I said I mean I couldn't take it from on the inside, but it sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
so that's how the, and then the it, next week I was in the studio writing it certainly does sound like fun and one of your stories I have to say is mm. legendary it's in the book it's yeah. in the book yeah. it was on the programme about the, the lyric sheet <laughs> you must tell us that I mean I've heard it yeah. but for, for the listeners you must tell us well, I, I, we finished doing the album, which was called Born Again, and uh, we were about to go on tour, and we were rehearsing for the tour, and I found that I had some difficulty retaining um, the words for Ozzy's songs. Um, they didn't seem to mean much in, in terms of... I, I normally have some kind of key for remembering things, insofar as I can understand the story about what the lyrics are trying to say. Sure. And uh, Ozzy's... There is wouldn't go into my mind. I just couldn't hold them. No complaints, whatever. But I just, I just couldn't get a hook on them. Mm. And so I made uh, a crib book, uh, a display book in plastic sheets, and I wrote the key words for paranoid and war pigs or whatever it is, Iron Man. Just the beginnings of the lines and everything. Once I got the cues, I was okay. Mm. Um, but they didn't seem to scan, and. Um, so I was practiced turning these pages over in the kitchen with my foot so that I could do it without anyone noticing. I don't normally use monitors on stage, but I'd ordered a couple of wedges to be in front of the... So you could, like, hide the lyric book. So I could hide the head. lyric book on the floor, and um, or the, the prompt sheets on the floor. Anyway, we went to... Um, we were going to open at the Maple Leaf Gardens, which is an ice hockey stadium in Toronto, and um, it's massive. P before we went... <coughs> We had a meeting at LSD, Light and Sound Design, in Birmingham, our production people. And they said, um, what, uh, anyone got any ideas for a stage set? And Geezer said, well, Stonehenge. And I said, well, that's a jolly good idea. How do you visualise it? And he said, well, life size, of course. <laughs> so we made a life-size Stonehenge. We actually had a far bigger budget than uh, Spinal Tap had, <laughs> so, which is where they got that story from, because I told them. So, uh... We built a Stonehenge and it was made out of carbon fibre and whatever and it was put into two huge, great uh, seagoing containers. We, we hadn't given much thought to the fact that if you build a real-sized Stonehenge you're going to need an awfully large stage to put it on. So, in fact, we only ever managed to unpack three of these monoliths and uh, with two cross pieces. The rest are still in someone's garden somewhere, as far as I know. Uh, or in, lying on a dock somewhere. I have no idea. There's, any, there's, a, there's a, a, a sort of a fibreglass Stonehenge somewhere. And uh, so, um, also at this time, we, we we decided to book this place for rehearsals. Um, Maple Leaf Gardens, not cheap. Um, and all of a sudden, this this dwarf started um, uh, capering around. And um, so, I'm looking at Bev Bevan, who's because the drummer's uh, had an anxiety attack and can't do the tour. Um, Bill Ward. So Bev Bevan lived down the road, and so he came in at the last minute. Um, he wasn't on the album, but he did a great job on the tour. And uh, so we looked at each other and said, "You know, I don't like this. Don Arden's around, and you know, he's there's something going on here." And the album, in the meantime, they'd produced a cover for an album which was a, um, a, a replica of a, a newborn baby painted crimson with long yellow fingernails and two little yellow horns. And the album was called Born Again, and uh, it was completely tasteless. And uh, so this on the dress rehearsal on the undress rehearsal I should say the uh, dwarf walked along the top of these things which was they must have been 30 feet high and uh, the top of Stonehenge 
and he was miming to the sound of a newborn baby screaming, but the screaming was flanged and phased um, and delayed, and it sounded enormous. And it, then he reached the centre of the stage and fell off backwards to this sort of diminishing scream onto a pile of mattresses. Well, we found out later he was a stunt dwarf. And, uh, <laughs> it, and at this point, the roadies, all dressed in their, um, dressed as druids, uh, came across the stage, oming, you know, uh, to the sound of this deep chime from a bell, dong, dong. And they looked pretty amazing, actually. I mean, apart from the Reeboks you could see under the, under the robes. <laughs> but it, it was stunning, stunning stuff. And I was just in hysterics. I mean, I thought, this is, I've joined the circus. You know. <laughs> so anyway, we all complained about the dwarf, and Don said, nah, they love it, the kids, you don't know nothing about show business, you boys. So uh, anyway, and, and we could see the gun protruding from his uh, inside pocket. No, I, I never saw John with a gun. Um, so anyway... Um, the show started and I'm looking around and the, the audience is in fits watching this dwarf which is now in full leotard with tail <laughs> long yellow fingernails and long yellow horns and uh, toenails crawling along imitating the devil's baby I suppose along the top of this um, um, I mean after this you know that Black Sabbath are definitely not into Satanism or anything <laughs> they're, they're not into anything like that at all and so the baby comes up and uh, this, this dwarf and, and then falls and screams and carries on screaming and carries on screaming while the bells toll and the druids come out and the dwarf is still screaming got someone's I don't know who might have been me took away the mattresses and uh, then, <laughs> <laughs> and then the uh, it might have been me and Bev actually um, and then the dwarf they, they, the, the druids are crossing the other side of the stage and um, and and then all the lights... Well, you see, the one thing they've done is spend all this money on uh, on the stage set. But they'd been thrifty. They'd saved money on the dry ice, which suddenly appeared like the Niagara Falls rushing from the back of the stage. And I suddenly realised I haven't got a clue what the first word of the first song is, which is Iron Man, I think, or War Pigs, one of those two. Yeah. And so now I take off like a train to the front of the stage because I've got to take a quick glimpse... At your lyrics. At my lyrics. And uh, I'm overtaken just a very short while before by this wall of cloud, which is shoulder high, almost shoulder high, chest high, a a wall of dry ice. I mean, I've never seen so much. It was just rushing towards the front of the stage and overtook me. So I went down on my knees, and if you can imagine, it's it's like doing ventriloquism on the radio. (laughs) Very difficult. Went down on my hands and knees, was waving my hand and blowing to try and see the book. At which point, the floor floodlights came on in my eyes, and uh, <laughs> virtually blinded so you. I got this, but I, I managed to get the first line. But I was so conf- normally that would have set me off throughout the whole song or till the next verse at least, and I'd have been all right. But um, I was in such a, I was, I was, and I was in such a state of hysterics that I could only remember one line at a time. So my head's popping up above the dry ice. And I'm singing this line, and I'm disappearing down again, <laughs> waving the floor to try and get some more lyrics. And in the end, I just felt folded up. I just folded up and ran around like a maniac, screaming with laughter, and no one seemed to know what the hell was going on.
got Stephen Gillens, one of the greatest uh, rock vocalists there ever was, and still is, of course. One of the biggest metal and rock bands on the planet over the last 30 years, of course, Iron Maiden. I've spoken to Steve Harris, Nico McBrain, and Bruce Dickinson several times, including when he returned to the band in the year of 2000. And he had uh, something to say about the current crop of bands that were around at that time. Non-trendy metal, you know, was just getting written off, you know. So, um... So unless you were slipping out on corn or limp biscuit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Exactly, you know. And so, uh, but we thought, you know, so really we were... We were treading relatively cautiously, so we thought, okay, we'll do Earl's Court, we'll see how it goes. And then on the strength of that, we thought, well, let's, you know, let's do some more shows. And, and we scaled back from... We were going to do half a dozen shows, and we scaled back to three. Because um, we thought, well, again... Just better wait so and it's see. Just in order, really. Yeah, exactly. You know, but again, everything's everything's. I have to say that that's fairly modest of you to to you know not believe that you could have you know sold them out. Yeah, but you know you you, you have to be realistic. You have to be realistic and, and and go a little bit cautiously because um yeah, you just have to. It just makes it just makes common sense. I mean, we you know we're not you know the world has moved on you know and. We're not under any illusions that the world owes us a living. No. Um, uh, but what's heartening is the fact that the fans are still out there. And indeed, uh, you know, I mean, not the same old fans. These are new fans. You know, These are people who are presumably disillusioned and or curious mm. about other forms of metal mm. other than the, you know, the sort of the really trendy stuff that gets shoved down their throat, you know. Although, having said that, there's one or two old fans like yeah, no, but and, and that's great. I mean, there should be room for everybody in in, in, in Maiden because, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, may sound daft, but being into Maiden is all about being into Maiden and the music. Yeah. You know, um, there's there's really no other baggage comes with it. You know, you don't have to have a bone through your nose. You don't have to tattoo yourself up to your ass. You know, I mean, it's it's just if you love if you like the music, that's it. That's that's all we care about. You know. Walk through the garden of life What do you think you'd expect you would see? Just like a mirror reflecting the moves of your life And in the river reflections of me Just for a second a glimpse of my father I see And in a moment he beckons to me Legendary guitarist Bernie Marsden has been a regular guest on this show and has appeared at the Steelhouse Festival many times. Here's our chat about how he co-wrote that particular song and how somebody else declined the offer. The Steelhouse thing came around because you know, the mates of mine are a hand, the Hand of Dimes boys, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Neville, who's an old pal, and uh, he uh, helped me out. I, I lost my voice last last year during some shows, so when I lost it, I just wasn't confident to do some of the tunes. So I phoned him from Scotland, and I said, oh, "So you could do a couple of shows with me, could you?" And he went, "Oh, when?" And I said, uh, 
next Wednesday and Thursday. <laughs> and he was he was brilliant because I was in Scotland. I was working up there, and uh, mm. he came down and we met at the gig. Just a little run through in the afternoon, and Amazing. he was good. So when he rang me and said they were doing Steelhouse, I said, "Well, why don't I come down and return the favour?" Oh. Then the guys from Steelhouse said, "Well, why don't you stick around for the f Saturday? We've only got you know everything's filled out band wise, but you know, do you fancy doing an acoustic stop?" So I said, "Yeah, that's fine. And we'll we'll do that, and uh, hopefully we'll get a similar reaction to last time." Amazing. You should tell us the very funny story about the um, when you were writing that song. Here I go again. Mm -hmm. At um, is it Clearwell? Yeah. And uh, you asked Mickey to come and join you, and he didn't because he was busy. I've, I'd been working on Here I Go Again for you know before we went to Clearwell Castle and uh, I'd, I'd had an idea and I wanted it and it was pretty much in f and I just said to him one afternoon look I've, I've got this way through this new song I'm working on and I'm just I'm kind of going uphill with it and I said do you fancy spending Saturday afternoon you know we'll go downstairs into the studio part where we're, we're working or we'll just come to my room or I'll come to your room with two guitars and I, you know, could you know, could you give give me a bit of input into it? Hmm. And he said, uh, "No." I said, "I've got somebody coming down to see me tonight, so I'm going to wash my hair and stuff and get myself together for that." And I was like, oh, "All right then." So that was that. So I finished it on my own and then presented it to David and you know said, "What do you think of this?" And he just ran upstairs and wrote. Lyrics. Most of the lyrics, yeah. So, but, uh, Mickey could have had a, a co-write. Well, don't, don't even go there. Yeah, don't even, don't <laughs> but he even. never did. He, he he was, but I'm sure his his hair looked lovely on the day. So <laughs> I, I just, um, yeah, it is true. It, it is true. Um, you know, it's one of those things. If uh, yeah, well, you know, see, I'm a bit speechless. As you can tell. It, what do you say? You know, yeah, yeah. thirty years later, you know, and. This week, you know, I've, I've, there's been, where are we now, Thursday, yeah, this week there's been two requests to put it into, you know, soundtrack stuff this week. Really? Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And while we've been here tonight, well, an hour and a half, it's probably been on the radio in America 300 times. Really? Yeah. 300? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. I'm gobsmacked. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, yeah. That is amazing. It's a lot.
band that I've been honoured to uh, interview several times over the 20 years are Status Quo, and usually it was Francis Rossi. But one time I got to speak to the late great Rick Parfit, rest in peace. What a lovely guy he was. You were doing a lot of the kind of what I would call classic Quo, like, like Big Fat Mama yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. And there was a noticeable mark, wasn't there, in the audience? Yeah. That you kind of, some of the audience were going... Yeah, well, you, you can't I think it was please great. all the people all the time, you know, but if we can please some of the people all the time, um, I think that's the saying or something like that anyway. But, <clears throat> you know, there has to be something for everybody in there, and indeed there is. I mean, there's a lot of the hits in there, and there's uh, mixed with uh, our, and hopefully the fans' favourite album tracks and stuff, you know. How do you feel generally about Quo's music being used in adverts? Because Argus used it. I mean, I was well, I love it. I love paid, it. Right? Yeah, you run all the way to the bank, don't you? Yeah, right. I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, apart from, from that, I mean, it's just... It's just good because it's status quo as well, and you know, people across the country are being reminded of us all the while, or one of our songs at least. And you know, that, that can't be bad, you know, it just keeps you there up on the mentalpiece, you know. And uh, it's, it's all good. Anytime you appear on the television, in whatever form, it's good. I was talking to my old mate Cliff Richard the other week, we were <laughs> at, a, at a do for my, at my son's school, and uh, we were talking about this, and I said to him, you know, what what's the way forward you know what's the point of bringing uh, bringing records out apart from you know you know you're going to sell them to your fan base and all that but who else are you going to get to and uh, and Cliff said well we're lucky meaning us and him because we have television people like to have us on telly you know mm-hmm. and we are very lucky in that respect you know I suppose we've never sort of trodden anybody's feet over the years and people like us and mm-hmm. within the business and uh, consequently, we we well we well we'll we'll have a go at most things, you know. And uh, so we we do, you know, end up popping up here and there on the telly. And same with Cliff, you see, Cliff will always always be there. So that for us is the, really the way forward. I mean, because I mean we we know that uh, you know Radio One aren't going to play us, so well, but Radio Two will play us, and that's that's good. I just want to touch on the history of the band for a while. The facts and figures are quite staggering when you look at it in black and white. You must be very proud of the legacy that Quo have. I mean, obviously, well, it's, I, you know, it's I, your job. I am. I mean, you know, we're passionate about what we do, and uh, because of that, I it's gone past so quickly, and we've done so much. And, Really, you don't realise that you've done it until somebody bats you these kind of facts and figures of how many shows you've done and, and how many records you've sold. And it, it, it is unbelievable. And I mean, if somebody 30-odd years ago had said to me, you know, in the turn of the century, you would still be playing and still playing major venues and stuff like that, I would not have believed them. Because I wouldn't have thought it possible, you know, because the lifespan of a band in those days was, you know, five, six, ten years maximum. You know, you'd think you're Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Beatles, whatever, you know. And uh, I would never have ever believed it. And it's, you know, it, it is a fantastic achievement, I suppose, and, and ongoing indeed, you know.
So we've almost come to the end of our uh, look back at 20 years of The Rock Show with clips from Ozzy Osbourne, Don Airy, Richie Blackmore, Ian Gillan, Bruce Dickinson, Bernie Marsden and Rick Parfit. But there's just one more to go. And it's a special one. Without a doubt, one of my greatest honours was meeting and interviewing the one and only Philip Lynott. I'd followed Thin Lizzy since first seeing them on the Jailbreak tour in the 70s and every tour after that. So I'd only been in radio a very short while when they announced a farewell tour and an album called Thunder and Lightning in 1983. Little did either of us know at the time what was to become of Philip. How are you doing? Great. Did you enjoy tonight's gig? I did, yeah. Um, it's, it's a very small stage with all the equipment we have, so you can't jump around. So you have to sort of stand and play, so it's great to concentrate and play on more. So how's the tour been going so far? It's been going really well. I mean, it's... Um, uh, the, the, the amount of dates we've done have been more than any other tour. And it's sold out, it's sold out. The response has been fantastic on all the gigs, you know. You know, in general, we weren't having hit records, we weren't having as good a record sales as we used to have. Um, we weren't the darlings of the press anymore. For example, um, Hollywood flopped, didn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. and I'd say there's a good percentage of our set that we have to play. Well. That, you know, like we have to sort of do the boys back in town and, and baby dress because you know, drum solo and you know, the flashes and maybe the cowboys and so with that and with uh, a lack of respect for the for the the music papers and not having a commercial success so therefore maybe the record company not really a hundred percent behind you because like, everybody loves the winner. And, but of course, the only people staying really loyal was the Lizzie supporters, and they kept turning up. As every tour showed, they were always sold out. We could sell like 60,000 tickets, but we couldn't sell 60,000 records. You know, I mean, it's just, just as an example, that's not really true, but it gives you an idea. And, uh, but the minute, like, we're breaking up, this, this interest again by the the uh, the media, you know, the record company, the you know, all these people who were falling away from the band are now looking on the band again with this this interest. And of course the Lizzie supporters are always there but, and they're sorry to see us go. And we're sorry to see them go too, you know, so this this so there's this great atmosphere again, but and it would be very tempting to say, yeah, we might come back and do it, you know. Um, but at the moment, it doesn't look like it's on the cards. I mean, where there's life, there's hope. I mean, you, you never know. I'm cheeky enough to, to go, let's reform things as you get in six months' time, my bro, you know. Oh
Within 
I'd like to thank everybody for your loyal support over 20 years of GTFM Radio. Thanks to all those who've helped. Long may it continue. And of course, long may it rain. Until the very next time, from me, Andy Fox, whatever you do, keep doing the things that make you feel good. Hope you can join me next week for a download and Def Leppard special. A very good night. And indeed, God bless. Bye for now.